Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. enjoyed this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. I got a chance to catch up with Allison Komiyama. Allison is with Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies, and she and I talked about you know, a few of, of uh, I guess, recent trends and observations that she's had uh, in the industry with respect to, to regulatory affairs and strategy and things of that nature. So really great perspective, uh, especially great hearing uh, from her point of view as a former FDA reviewer, as well as a consultant that helps companies with regulatory strategies and submissions. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. I'm pretty excited about this one because every time I get to talk to Allison Komiyama from Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies. You can find her, at, by the way, at acknowledge-rs.com. Every time I get the chance to talk to her, it, it, we have a good time. And Allison, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. It's good to be back. Uh, you got it. So you and I were catching up the other day when we were talking about some of the, you know, I guess, I hate to say trends, but maybe um, some things that you and I have observed on the regulatory front um, and, and what I was hoping we could do today is kind of talk about both sides of that equation. I mean, of course, a lot of people know that you used to be an FDA reviewer. Uh, and so I want to pick your brain about that side of, of the coin, if you will. And now in your current practice with Acknowledge RS, I'll talk a little bit about some of the things that you've seen. So uh, fair game. We're just going to dive in and talk about a few different things. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So... Um, First thing, I do kind of want to, you know, hopefully put to bed uh, an issue or a topic that has surfaced in recent weeks and months in our industry. Um, and maybe it's always going to be there, but it seems like there's a lot of attempts to poke holes into uh, FDA does this. Should they do that? Should they do that? And industry is trying to cut a corner here and a cut a corner there and that sort of thing. And I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. I mean, like I said, you've been on both sides of the equation I remember you you sharing something with me a while back that hey, FDA reviewers care about this stuff too. Can you maybe just speak to a little bit of that? You know, kind of your observations on both sides of that fence. Sure. Yeah, and I, and I I think I um, listened to well, I did listen to one of your recent podcasts with you and Mike Drews talking about the same thing, and I. Um, I, I I think you're maybe mentioning the a documentary that came out recently about medical devices. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I and I watched it uh, as well. Uh, you know, and and I think you bring up an interesting point. I have been on both sides, of, you know, FDA and on the industry side, and now as a consultant for medical device companies. But I think I've also been on the third side, and I've been the recipient of medical devices. I've had life saving treatments that, without you know, FDA regulated drugs and devices, you know. A lot of us wouldn't be here, so I, I feel like uh, pretty much everyone's been a patient, right? And I think um, you know it, the nice part about it um, is that we do have this technology that can help us in so many ways. What I thought was really powerful about that uh, documentary is it really gave a voice to the third side of the coin here, which is the patient side. And I think you know it's 
it was a valuable lesson at the end to say, hey, you know, ask questions, you know, don't be shy to, to be an advocate for yourself and step up and, and don't trust, you know, doctors or FDA, trust yourself as well and do your own research. But, you know, one of the things that's hard is, um, and I think there was a quote in that documentary when I was, I watched it again last night because I, I, I thought this might be a topic we'd, we'd bring up today, is that, you know, there's, there was a doctor that said, we can't trust the medical device manufacturers and we, we certainly can't trust FDA. And I was thinking, well, then who, you know, we can't just trust the patients <sighs> well. So, you know, I, right. I think, it, you know, the, the documentary was fairly one-sided, but it really brought up a good point of, you know, the, the tips at the end that really said, you know, get a second opinion. Yeah. You know, research the device that you're going to have put in you or, or used on you. You know, new is not necessarily better. I think these are all things that FDA reviewers really consider as well when they're looking at a new device or looking at a device that they are trying to evaluate substantial equivalence. So, you know, if anything, you know, they, they, they brought up the point that a lot of FDA reviewers or, you know, employees leave and go into industry. And I, I sort of laughed at that because I was like, well, of course, you know, they're, they know uh, how to regulate things. And they, so, you know, I don't see it as we leave the industry or leave FDA and go into industry trying to figure out how we're going to cut corners. And look, we have all this insider knowledge on how to get things through, you know, that are unsafe. If anything, I feel like FDA reviewers really get why regulations are in place and they want to take that into the industry that they go into. And, you know, it's not just they go straight and work for a medical device manufacturer. I mean, I ended up as a consultant. Um, I don't know if you, in my blog, I had a whole series called FDA Friday. Yeah. Which was interviewed. It's a great series, by the way. I mean, (laughs) it's a really great series. Folks, you should check that out. Go to Acknowledge rs.com and you can go to Allison's blog and, and you can read these these posts they're fantastic yeah and and, and it sort of highlights the the diversity of uh, careers that former FDA reviewers go on to have and how they can really benefit industry and benefit medical device technology and ultimately benefit patients that are getting these treatments so um, you know I, I I do feel very strongly that FDA reviewers have the best interests of patients in mind but um, Again, you have to be your own advocate as well and really take care of, of, you know, doing the research and understanding what's going into your body. Well, I mean, let's be, let's be real here. I mean, FDA reviewers, I mean, they're people too. They're patients too. Exactly. Yeah, I, right? Right? I, <laughs> there's probably not a single one of us that hasn't had a tongue depressor in our mouth <laughs> or a bandaid on our body. And, you know, we've, we've all... We certainly know somebody who has. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's... Um, uh, there with you know there's a lot of power with these medical um you know advances that are going on but uh, you know thank goodness i feel that we have fda to to review these things and make sure they are safe and effective and that you know the people are going to be able to use them and and use them correctly for sure and i don't remember you sharing some stories a while back where when you were an fda reviewer and you shared some stories about, you know, you really took it seriously because, and you cared about helping, you know, advance technology and advance medicine and, and advance the quality of life. And and I don't know if you have any anecdote or, or story that you can share from, from that time as an FDA reviewer where you were looking at it, this information that was being presented to you with that kind of passion. Do you have any stories that, that come to mind? Um, absolutely. Actually, there's one. So I, I helped uh, review a device 
that ended up being used on my husband many months later. And I remember being in the, you know, meeting with the surgeon ahead of time and it wasn't an implantable, but it was a device that, you know, was going to be used in a procedure that I was like, thank goodness, you know, this device exists because without it, um, you know, he, yeah, it was, it was just something that I was like, wow, I'm I'm glad that I know the other side of, uh, of, you know, what went into, getting this device onto the market because I knew that there had been clinical testing. I knew that there had been biocompatibility, performance testing. Like there is, there's a lot that goes into these files um, and and into these devices before they're, you know, allowed to be used on patients. And I I think it's a, a disservice to say that there's, you know, things just get through because it's substantially equivalent. There is a lot of testing that goes on. Oh, for sure. And, and I want to touch on that here in a moment. Um, but folks, you know, he, uh, the, the advice that Allison is providing you as a patient, you know, we have, I mean, it's, it's your life, you know, it's your, you should take some responsibility for that. And even if it's a loved one, I mean, I, I, um, Hi, mom. I'm going to tell you uh, tell a story about my mom. Um, <laughs> I, I remember a few years back, um, my um, I think as a grandparent that was undergoing some sort of procedure, and and I wasn't you know there with with the doctor visit. My mom's like, oh, the doctor was so nice. I'm like, well, okay. Well, did you ask him this? Did you ask him that? Did you? She's like, no, but he was so nice. I go, well, that doesn't make him a good doctor, you know. Yeah. But a lot of people think that because the doctor is nice, oh, don't mishear me. Uh, nice doctors can be good doctors, but um, just because somebody's nice doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that that they're good. And and so I would encourage you as a patient or you know as a loved one um, who who has you know family members who might undergo procedures, ask questions, be informed. Uh, you know, come from that position rather than just whether or not the guy, the guy or, or the lady's nice. So, um, do use that advice. It's a really good tip. But I do want to talk a little bit about you know the, the you know the documentary and, and even long before this documentary, uh, the the whole regulatory path to get devices cleared and approved into market. That's been under scrutiny for decades, you know, and, you know, some people are like, oh, the 510K path is too hard and others are like, oh, it's way too easy and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But, you know, you were sharing a story with me the other day that even though it is, you know, a somewhat well-established or well-known pathway, the 510K pathway is not by no stretch of the imagination easy. Um, so, you know, you were sharing a story where, and folks... Uh, just like with your doctor, uh, same sort of thing with your regulatory affairs professionals. Uh, ask a lot of questions. Come from an informed position because there's, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of people out there who are providing regulatory advice, who are helping companies with submissions, and it's reckless. And and Allison, yeah, you, you were sharing a story about that. So um, do you mind kind of, um, you know, we'll, we'll protect the innocent, I suppose, but um, <laughs> maybe sharing some of the experiences that that you uh, encountered with a recent client. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think, you know, as you said, there there are good doctors. There are doctors that you, you know, maybe should ask additional questions of. I think the same thing goes for your regulatory consultant. I think the, um, yeah, yeah and, and what you're referencing is, I was <laughs> complaining about a, a company that does a lot of testing for a, uh, for um, companies that need third-party testing uh, for performance. And, you know, uh, we're seeing this more and more with uh, the third-party test labs that have services saying, "Yay, we can do your 510k for you. We can do your regulatory strategy and, and get this through for you." Um, and unfortunately, we've been doing 
some salvage work with these uh, 510Ks that end up getting NSEs, uh, which is a non-substantial equivalent decision based on, you know, the inadequate responses to the additional information uh, letters that FDA has been issuing. And I think it's, it's a bummer because these are devices that, you know, that if the the medical device manufacturer had done the right testing, had given FDA uh, what they needed. And that's, you know, looking at the predicate devices, seeing what testing actually needs to be done before you submit your file. But also, you know, does it need to have a pre-submission? Should you go to FDA and talk to them and say, hey, here's the testing we're planning on doing. Does FDA, you know, agree or would there be additional testing that would be needed? You know, unfortunately, if you just sort of you know, go to FDA with the 510K and say, ah, here we've, you know, we've, we think we've put the right testing together, you know, be prepared for uh, additional questions and deficiencies from the agency and make sure you have a good advocate, that you have a good uh, regulatory consultant that can help you, you know, address those questions and get those, um, you know, those deficiencies cleared up. So FDA can clear it and they can say, yeah, this is substantially equivalent. You've, you've done your testing, you've done your due diligence. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think folks, um, I, I know that our listening audience kind of ranges from, you know, early stage startups who are doing this uh, for the first time uh, to those who have been through this path many, many times before. But regardless, you know, your submission to the agency is a reflection of your brand. Um, and, and I think a lot of times companies don't think about that. And, and if, it's your, if it's your first submission, um, whether you like it or not, you're setting a first impression. And, you know, the, that old cliche, you know, uh, that first impression is pretty important. Uh, it is true. Um, and so if, if you're sending, um, I'll say, poor quality submission that's deficient in a lot of areas, uh, you know, you're, you're setting yourselves up for, for some challenges down the road. And now it's not, I mean, it's certainly something that you can address and, and, and correct, um, but you can also, um, it, it, with a little bit of planning, a little bit of strategy and working with the right resources, you can avoid it altogether. Um, so do you have any like tips for, for folks that are you know, maybe considering their options when it comes to submissions, whether it be a pre-sub or a 510K or ID or th- and that sort of thing? Do you have any tips that people should, should, um, uh, uh, should take to, as they're starting to prepare these different regulatory type of documents? Sure. I you know, there's a there's a wealth of information on the FDA website. I mean, they CDRH Learn, which is uh, you know the website uh, at FDA.gov, where you can go and learn about how your device is classified. Like, how should you even start looking at the regulatory pathway for your device? Uh, you know, there's a lot of information there. You can call Dice, which is the Division of Industry and um, Consumer. Education. Thank you. Yeah, I was I was trying to figure out to see myself. I'm like, I know what it is, but you just put me on the spot. Dice. It's short for dice. Um, but th- you know, they will pick up the phone and answer questions if you call them. Uh, you know, they're there every single day. They they uh, have somebody that will answer simple questions. You know, if you're going to ask, hey, do I need this test? What do you think about this? They're going to say, hey, you should maybe consider a pre-submission and and come to FDA and talk to us. You know that. Uh, it's always good to, you know, get a half an hour of free consulting with us. We're happy to pick up the phone as well and say, you know, yeah, it sounds like you have a medical device, you know, here's uh, where we would start, you know, and here, you know, maybe you do need a pre-submission. Maybe the regulatory strategy is, is abundantly clear based on the, what the predicate devices have done. 
in that case, you know, could you just go in, you know, here's the testing that you're going to need and just go in with the 510k. Um, you know, there's never uh, a really, it, you know, I should say it's, it's never really black and white, you know, of like, well, this is exactly what you have to do. There are different strategies. There's different risks associated with, you know, different pathways that you choose. It depends on your pain point, right? If you want to just get this in as fast as you can, or are you, is money a, a hardship? You know, there are different ways to uh, address those issues and also, you know, give FDA still at the end of the day, the best product so you can get your device on the market. Yeah. And folks, the, the worst thing you can do is just throw it over the wall and cross your fingers and hope that it's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But a lot of people do that. I mean, it, and I remember, you know, many years ago, I worked for a large med device company. And, you know, this is uh, a different era of, of um, regulatory, a different era of communication with FDA. Um, we we used to do that, you know. In fact, it, it was in, we were discouraged from having advanced communications with FDA. Um, you know, we were going to submit the 510k, and and there was probably no dialogue or exchange. And and folks, this is not the the current state of, of affairs and working with the FDA. That dialogue, that communication with the agency, is not only encouraged, but it it will be very helpful. And 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 um, basically smooth the process, you know, and, and I think, you know, with that pre-submission, we've talked a lot about that on, on previous episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast before, but that, that pre-submission program, it's popular today. And it's not just popular, it's a good thing. Um, you know, to Allison's point, not every 510K is going to necessarily require or, or, or be a good candidate for pre-submission, but there are quite a few that are. So can you give maybe a few thoughts or ideas as to when I should consider pre-submission as a, as a precursor to a 510K? Sure. I, I'd say the two most common that we get uh, here at Acknowledge is you know, if a company isn't quite confident of the testing that they're going to need. You know, maybe there is a new feature of the device that it looks like it might need additional you know, testing. Is it an animal study? Is there going to be a um, you know, new performance test that's, that there's no standard for? You know, can we ask FDA you know, here's our, a draft of the protocol we've put together. Can you review it and let us know if this would be an adequate test to address this new feature? So that, you know, if we have questions about testing, those are probably the most common pre-submissions we have. And that's, you know, those are very valuable to get FDA's uh, input on that. I would say the other one is if you, um, really early startups, we work with, um, you know, companies that are, that have an idea, you know, and, and have a, uh, a sketch on the back of the cocktail napkin that says, you know, here's what we think we want to do. Uh, you know, going to FDA, you can go as, as early as you want to the agency and talk about your your proposed device, you know, for those, uh, I find, you know, for the early startups that really want to get feedback from FDA, that that's valuable for oftentimes the investors that are interested in, Hey, have you thought about your regulatory strategy? What sort of testing, you know, what testing are you looking at? But also, you know, is FDA sort of on board with, um, you know, that this is a moderate risk device. And so that's, you know, that's the second type of pre-sub we do uh, quite frequently. Yeah. And folks, Pre-submissions don't cost anything as far as dollars, you know. So that's the other nice thing to, to consider with with pre-subs. I mean, of course, there's your time. There's Allison's time to help you prepare that, but uh, you're not paying a, a user fee uh, for FDA to review and, and give you some feedback on on your device with utilizing the pre-submission. Yeah. Um, I want to remind folks. I'm talking to Allison Komiyama with uh, Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies, and you can learn more about 
uh, her consulting practice at acknowledge-rs.com. So, Allison, even with um, pre-submissions and you, you get to a 510K, yeah, there's a chance that you may get an, an AI letter. So what is an AI letter and what should I do about it if I get one? Yeah, so the AI letter, and I know I mentioned this earlier, I probably should explain it better, is the um, is, is a hold letter. They used to call them telephone holds because they'd give you a call and then send you an email that says, you know, here are all the deficiencies you, you have. But it's FDA's way of saying, here are the outstanding issues that we believe we still need to understand about your device, or maybe it's additional testing that we um, recommend you do uh, so we can... Uh, to address a substantial equivalence question. You know, if it's uh, a new feature of your device, as I said, they might have additional, um, you know, clarification needed, or they might say, hey, can you provide some additional testing on, on that computer? On that component, let's say, um, you know, I we get yeah, they're they're becoming more common. I would say, um, you know, FDA used to have the chance of sending two AI letters, but after the you know Medufa four, they said, okay, we're going to take that down to just you only get one shot, you only get one AI hold letter. Uh, you know, you also have the refuse to accept checklist, which happens within the first fifteen days. So you know, FDA's uh, expectations of your file, they want it to be you know the best file that's you know crossing uh, their their threshold and coming on, you know to onto their desk. But then you know, once they've reviewed the substantive review of, of or done the substantive review of your file, you know, if they have additional questions, that's what goes into the hold letter. So you have 180 days to, you know, respond to that hold. FDA's, um, you know, they've become very interactive with uh, helping you address those deficiencies. They had a pilot program, and I think it's now uh, pretty standard across all the branches, where you have 10 days to actually set up a teleconference call after you get that AI letter. And you can um, request you know, the lead reviewer um, and any of the specific consults that are on the file. So those are the people that are helping review your file with your lead reviewer and say, you know, here that we have two or three clarification questions based on the deficiencies we got. Can we have this teleconference call with you? Within the first 10 days after you get that hold letter, they'll set up a call with you. And I have found we've, you know, really knocked out a lot of the questions that we had. So we knew what path to move forward um, with, you know, after we got that letter. You know, if there are still questions or if it's like, hey, you know, you've asked for this additional testing, um, can we, you know, submit a pre-submission? It's called a submission issue meeting. So it's a pre-sub within your 510K hold time. Uh, you know, the nice part about that is you can ask additional questions within that pre-submission and FDA has 21 days to respond. So that, the you know, they're really... There's an incentive for them to get it back to you to get you that information you need so you can start the testing and get it done within the 180 days that you have um, for that hold. Yeah, and I'll um, I'll give you a softball question here. Is there, if you do happen to get an AI letter, is there any reason uh, that you can think of why you would not take advantage of that teleconference with the FDA reviewer? So we actually have one that we just got the other day. It's three questions long. It's a very straightforward uh, hold letter. We think we can probably address the concerns within two weeks. That would be the case where I'd say, you know, I, I don't think we actually need that clarification. I think, you know, it is nice to meet your review team and sort of, you know, talk to your lead reviewer. Um, you know, you... 
I, I find, you know, anytime you can interact with your review team and, and have it be a collaborative effort, it is beneficial for all parties. Um, but that would be the only time where I'm like, we, we're very clear FDA has, you know, made it so there, there are no clarification questions needed. Um, therefore we're, we're good to move forward. Yeah. And I, and, and, and that's the exception, I would say, at least in my experience, um, sometimes, and it's, and it's not because they're trying to be contentious or anything, but sometimes the questions that I received in an AI letter, I just didn't understand the question, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you got to think about it, you know, F, FDA sees like everything or for the most part, everything. So there might be other submissions that are coming in from other products or, or different technologies altogether that maybe using you know similar sorts of methodologies or approaches um, and and all this you know the standards that are out there and the guidance documents that are out there and there have been times where the question just I didn't understand the relevance of the question um, and if you have any confusion whatsoever about what it is that teleconference is so so important because you have an opportunity as Allison mentioned to have that dialogue to have that communication directly live uh, with the FDA review team. So it's, it's very invaluable. Um, and I think the other thing that's probably good to highlight to people, I mean, in days past, there used to be, there, there was, well, I mean, I'm going way back, so I'm going to show my age just a little bit. Um, this, this predates the refuse to accept or the RTA um, provisions that are in place now, but used to be, you know, you get questions in an AI letter you might respond to those questions. You, it, there was a chance that you were going to get maybe, maybe even a second uh, letter from, a, from F, FDA, another AI letter with additional questions on top of that. Those days are gone too, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because, unless there's, I, mean, oh, I guess the only time I would say that they might have additional questions is if something comes up, you know, while, uh, after you've submitted the AI response, you know, if there's something that they found out about your device, um, you know, that's when they, they will ask additional questions if they have them. I mean, now they will ask, you know, you can submit your AI response and oftentimes we'll get one or two more interactive questions with the agency and it'll be more on the side of, can you fix your 510k summary, uh, which is a document that's, that goes public, uh, you know, before we clear this. And you, you, you feel pretty confident at that point that you're I, going to get clearance. Yeah, I love that question because uh, that means uh, everything else is good to go. Yeah. Um, but, but folks do understand that when, when you get the AI letter, um, and you have 180 days. Um, not that you'll need 180 days. Uh, I, sometimes you do. Sometimes you need to ask for an extension. Um, but it, it is important to get those questions answered uh, to the best of your knowledge and ability, because if if you do not satisfy the needs of the agency, that's when you get the the well in the world of five ten k process the worst news possible, and the worst news possible is that NSE letter. You don't want that, right? Because what happens when you get if you happen to get an NSE letter? What, what do you have to do now? Right. So the NSE letter, the non-substantial equivalent uh, letter, you know, in that they'll list the um, they'll list the deficiencies that they don't feel that you've adequately addressed. So you'll have to submit a new 510k. I mean, if you want to get your device cleared, you will need to um, you know submit a new file. You can reference the previous file that you submitted, uh, but you will also have to then include the deficient or the, the NSE letter or any of the previous deficiencies um, that were sent to you and address them in that new 510k. So it's, you have a little more work ahead of you in that next submission. 
For sure. So, Allison, I know we've, we've hit on a few tips and pointers and some of the observations that that you've seen in, in recent uh, weeks and months regarding regulatory uh, side of things. Any other thoughts or stories or, or tips that you'd want to share with the listening audience? Yeah, you know, I was just thinking that one of the things that we just talked about is the updating the 510K summary. And what I have noticed, and I'm wondering if this is, you know, uh, with the pressure that, you know, FDA has been feeling, especially with, you know, the documentary we were talking about earlier, um, one of the complaints in that in that uh, documentary was that a predicate device can have been subject to a recall. And FDA is just saying, well, you know, we don't really care if it has been subject to a recall or not. You know, we, we're just um, we're just evaluating equivalence here, but that's not true. You know, I, I have been finding that, you know, one of the final things that FDA has been asking in the 510k summaries is to say, you know, what is your primary predicate? And please make a statement that this predicate device has not been subject to a recall based on the design or you know, the testing of the device. So FDA is saying, you know, no, we, we absolutely are looking at that. Uh, you know, we don't want to, if there's a device that has made mistakes or it's been recalled, you know, we want to make sure that the new device doesn't have the same issues, you know, and, and if the new device has adequately mitigated those risks, um, you know, they want that information included in the 510k summary. So summary there is choose your predicates wisely yes. and make sure you can, uh, you, you understand the state of that predicate device as far as, you know, if there have been regulatory issues in, by, and if by chance there have been, um, be prepared to explain why it is a suitable predicate uh, and what you've done about it to, to address any sort of concerns that, that might be out there with that, with that other device. So that's a really good tip. You know, and I, I've also heard, um, Allison, um, you mentioned Mike Drews earlier. I was chatting with him the other day. He, he's already seen in recent submissions, uh, I think pre-subs specifically, where devices that have already been on the market where they were doing a new 510K or planning a new 510K for like a label expansion. You know, these are products that have been in use for, you know, in some cases, hundreds of thousands. And I think in one uh, example that he was sharing with me, over a million uh, cases and there's now a request for for more clinical evidence to support that. So, you know, these these things that do um, happen, uh, you know, we should pay attention to those as medical device professionals, you know, even if it is uh, a documentary uh, that that seems to be one-sided, um, do realize that folks like Allison and, and, and me and, and even FDA are paying attention to those things and it can influence the things that, that need to be done. So it's good that you're in the know uh, across the board. So Allison, I want to thank you so much uh, for, for taking time to, to chat with me and on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Again, folks, um, the, uh, I've been talking with, with Allison Komiyama from uh, acknowledge regulatory strategies, and we've been going through a lot of uh, issues and observations that you can uh, mitigate and address uh, as far as regulatory strategy and regulatory submissions. So I would encourage you uh, to learn more about her team and her practice. Go to acknowledge-rs.com. And if you'd like to learn how to make sure your design controls and your risk management information and is up to date and, and prepared and ready for uh, 510k submission, yeah, folks, that's important. Uh, and preparing pre-subs as well as 510Ks and PMAs, 
you should come over to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about our EQMS platform and how we're helping medical device companies get through that regulatory process much faster with less risk. This has been John Spear, the host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.